0: And welcome to ipsa a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Etienne Toussaint, Associate Professor of Law at the University of the District of Columbia, David A. Clark School of Law. We will discuss his article, Dismantling the Master's Health, Toward a Justice-Based Theory of Community Economic Development, which is published in the University of Michigan Journal of Law Reform. So welcome to the show, Etienne hi how you doing great uh so i'm I'm really excited to have you on uh, I've been looking forward to this for for a while and uh this paper was was really interesting on a number of levels to me, and I wanted to kind of ask you about especially the sort of intro and your own personal experiences later in the interview but for listeners who aren't so familiar with you know, community economic development as a concept and how it sort of historically has been thought of uh, in policy terms. I wonder if you could kind of start us off by kind of grounding people in how traditionally this issue has been
1: discussed and understood. Well, first and foremost, let me say thank you for the great opportunity to speak on your podcast, Brian. I'm I'm certainly a fan and it's been a pleasure to see the great work you're doing in the legal profession, providing an opportunity for everyday folks to learn more about these important issues. So, so I certainly take it as an honor and a privilege to speak with you. Thank you so much. Yeah, so for me, you know, this work begins with my own personal experience growing up in the South Bronx and and I tend to ground all of my legal scholarship in my lived experience, the things I see every day, the conversations that I have with folks or had with folks growing up or in practice um and one thing that's true in the South Bronx, where I grew up, and that's true in a lot of other places around America, whether it's an urban setting or a rural setting is that you know poverty exist and is a, and is a consistent um, characteristic of life for many folks, you know, and, and that poverty manifests in different ways, um, material and, and also immaterial in some sense. Um, you know, so that's where I enter into the conversation about community economic development, uh, which is to say, how do people navigate the experience of poverty or feeling impoverished uh, in their daily lives. Um, and this traces back to America's earliest days. You know, and so in my paper, I begin the story about community economic development um, right after the Civil War, after the emancipation of enslaved Africans. And I think during that moment in America, when we began discussing the Reconstruction Amendments. There was a question. Uh, and the question was this. We have created a country where some folks embody a sort of bourgeois elite class. They are property owners. They have immense wealth that they've generated from a system of enslavement um, that drove sort of sort of, uh, cotton and, and, and other kinds of of farming produce, and then you have another class of indentured laborers, poor workers, um, and then finally a class of sort of black, brown um, people who who embody the lowest rung of the socio-cultural ladder. And the question at that point was, how do we resolve, or at least make sense of? The gross inequities across the board. Um, Historically, then, community uh, development, right? And I want to distinguish community development from economic development from what we now call community economic development. Community development began, in, in my view, as a process of thinking about how community members. in the various communities that existed across the country, even at that early stage following the Civil War, how community members alongside civic leaders, government stakeholders, developed strategies to address local, economic, political, social, and even environmental problems. Uh, Economic development stands alongside that and I think embodies the influence of capitalism and capitalist thought upon democracy. And so economic development, we might think of as the role that economists have historically played in politics in emphasizing economic growth policies Uh, from demand-side strategies like cutting taxes and interest rates to supply-side strategies like deregulation and privatization, but emphasizing economic growth policies as a market-oriented solution to those community development challenges. So, So there's a conversation taking place between political figures and community stakeholders on the one side thinking about how to resolve sort of inequality that exists in communities in local contexts and economists on the other side that are thinking about the role of capitalism, the role of the private marketplace and how to maintain the existence of a private economic marketplace in concert with a government um, and, and sort of allow those things, two things, to work in tandem. And so, you know, as a result, there's there's been tension, even initially, in terms of the approach to ad- to addressing very fundamental and and simplistic community problems. Um, and that tension has played out across history. Community economic development as a term sort of emerges. It primarily around the civil rights movement, to be quite frank, when that term community economic development emerged. And it emerged as an approach whereby community members, government stakeholders, and sort of economists, as it were, would think about solutions to poverty, solutions to social problems in communities. that were structured around sort of community-oriented economic development policies. Um, and, And so community economic development as a result has really focused around how do we create economic policies that can address community problems and how do we put community stakeholders, political stakeholders and economists come up with economic market-driven policies together at the table to come up with ideas to solve the fundamental social, economic, environmental challenges that people have faced across America in different communities since the colonial era. And um, in, in CED then, which is the acronym for Community Economic Development, has evolved in two directions. The first is what scholars in this area call place-based programs. And place-based programs or place-based CED programs sort of emphasize an idea of improving place and using economic policies to improve the notion of place to address the underlying sort of social and economic challenges that people face that you might think of simply as poverty. Um, and that means, and it's done so in concert with the private marketplace. And so that emerges as programs that try to incentivize stakeholders in the private marketplace, whether they're private investors or private developers, using tax incentives to bring, uh, them into the, the conversation about how do we provide uh, benefits to people and communities uh, in, in a way that will change um, their experience of everyday life, that will, ha- that will have an impact on the poverty that they experience. And so historically, we've seen affordable housing programs, business development programs that utilize tax incentives to bring in investment to change place. In communities, right? The most recent, Donald Trump has a program called Opportunity Zones, right? And we can talk about that, how that's a place based program. Um, Alternatively, there's been a very different strand of CED thought. And that strand has been called people based community economic development. And those policies emphasize people as opposed to place, which is to say, how do we create programs? That address the the inequalities that exist between people in terms of the resources that they have to navigate the poverty that they experience on a day-to-day basis. Um, so, what do I mean? A, a very popular example might be uh, the housing choice voucher, sort of what we know as Section Eight, an economic program that that literally puts money or voucher in the hands of people to empower them with the means to move into different neighborhoods so that they can resolve poverty by moving themselves through social mobility, right? So social mobility programs are addressed, are focused on people and thinking about how economic programs can empower people with the tools to move. And so there's been a debate between people-based programs and, and um, place based programs historically. and and what this paper tries to do is to sort of disentangle some of the normative and philosophical assumptions that sometimes exist uh, underneath both of these approaches and, and sort of thinking through what those assumptions and and and, and normative um and philosophical, considerations mean in terms of our social imaginary of what's possible.
0: So reading the paper, I got the impression that part of the kind of issue with both the place-based and person-based approaches is that in some sense, they seem to see the place in the person as a problem rather than a resource. And on some levels seem to be sort of both deeply informed by the same kind of ideological perspective on what it means to develop a location or a group of people in an economic sense. Is is that a fair reading?
1: Yes. And You know, the the, the way I think about it is this, I think ultimately what we all want as a society, what we all want as a people across the political aisle is a fair and just society, right? I mean, the whole notion of America as the land of opportunity, you know, as it were, America as a bastion of, of justice, Um, and equality is this idea that life in America can be fair for everyone and everyone has an equal opportunity to pursue their conception of the good, their idea of what it means to live a good life. And underneath this idea, people versus place, right, is an assumption that the construction of American democracy and the philosophical assumptions about what it means to be a citizen in America has 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 been created um, with an understanding that the rule of law in America is fair for everyone, and that everyone has an equal opportunity and. Um, it's not a question of reforming the system itself, but it's really a question of assisting people in their daily efforts to navigate a system that at it's on its face is neutral, is fair is just, but because of the the, you know, because of the way capitalism works, Sometimes some folks get a little more coins than others, and, and 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 what it does is it it positions the role of government as serving as an intermediary in a neutral and fair system. That driven by capitalism means that there will be some inequality inevitably. It, it positions the role of government as trying to mitigate that inequality to make life a little bit better for folks that. You know, don't end up at the top of the totem pole and and to perhaps pull at the heartstrings of those at the top of the totem pole to, you know, throw a few coins down at those at the bottom. Um, And and so in the paper, you know, I try to think about this illusion of justice that, that underlies both of these conceptions of how do we address the existence of poverty.
0: Well, so one of the things you talk about in the paper is the emergence of sort of at least supposedly alternative approaches to thinking about community economic development, including uh, what you refer to as social impact bonds. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what those are, why people are pursuing them, and maybe reflect on what I took to be the kind of superficiality of their difference in a lot of ways from the previous approaches.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, the social impact bond is a creature of, you know, uh, increasing financialization in America. This sense that um, finance is a tool. uh, First finance is a tool to create wealth. Right. And we could have an entire conversation around what finance is and, and 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 sort of how we embrace it as a nation on ethical grounds. But but uh, using finance as a tool to address social problems, which in many ways is a deference to the sort of norm of private ordering. Um as a way to construct social life. And that in many ways, embraces a notion that um, we are free as a people, all of us, right? Private ordering assumes a marketplace if we think about the the everyday interaction of people in society as as a marketplace it assumes a marketplace that is neutral, that is fair, and that, and within which all people experience a sense of freedom, or what we might call liberty. Um, you need that to to believe in private ordering. And of course, you know, economists might say, well, every market has inefficiencies, and the, and the role of government might be to try to limit those inefficiencies with targeted and limited interventions, but. But ultimately, those um, market inefficiencies, um, you know, will will most most of the time filter themselves out purely by the sort of competitive nature of the market that allows the best ideas and the best products and the best services to rise to the top. Um, So to me, right, the social impact bond, which is just a finance tool that allows private investors to invest in financial vehicles that bring with them a mission of benefiting society in some way, whether it's social or environmental. Um, it allows private capital to effectively benefit from under the guise of addressing social problems. Um, and it's interesting, right? There's also, there's a, there's a, a strand of the social impact bond that's entering the environmental space, which is going to be incredibly fascinating to see as climate change becomes more of an issue. It's, it's called the environmental impact bond. And in fact, the very first environmental impact bond was unrolled in Washington, D.C. to address um flooding in the, in the watershed and the fact that, geez, well, I mean, climate change is real and places are flooding and flooding causes problem. And we know the science we know what it takes to address these issues but you know government doesn't have money there is fiscal austerity but we can pull on the heartstrings of private capital to invest by incentivizing them with the opportunity to profit right and so the environmental impact bond works in the same way you know and goldman sachs is a is is a one of the common players in this space, right? And, and we we praise them for it. Goldman Sachs provides a couple million dollars to fund a program that we know will work, build out environmental retrofits across the city, you know, permeable surfaces, improvements in, in green infrastructure to reduce flooding. Um, and then the government compensates them pro- based on a contract, based on you know, long-term government cost savings. It sounds like a great idea on its surface, but it also sort of uh, erases the notion of government accountability for historical neglect in certain communities where we know environmental justice typically pervades. Um, It sort of distorts the role of government in terms of promoting the public interest and serving as a... um, uh, serving as a guard, so to speak, of the public trust, you know, when it comes to environmental issues. Um, But it also, in many ways, in a disturbing way, actually turns poverty into a marketplace for those with wealth and those with capital to benefit financially under the guise of doing something good. And what's interesting to me is that this is something that's been going on for a long time. Uh, in the early 20th century, Andrew Carnegie wrote an essay, an incredibly racist essay, if you read it, called The New Gospel of Wealth. And in that essay, he said, those with wealth have, and I'm sort of paraphrasing, but those with wealth have a mission, a sort of gospel to help the poor and to share their wealth with the poor, because poor people really wouldn't know what to do with it, um, but those with means do, and they have a duty to, you know, limit their wealth in an appropriate way and share that wealth with others. And so we know that Andrew Carnegie created Andrew uh, Carnegie Hall and Carnegie Mellon and all these great institutions, right? But at the same time, he, he generated tremendous wealth for himself and his family. Um, and, and so it. For, to me, it kind of preserves the fiction of the American dream. It preserves the perceived justice of a very unequal society um, under the guise of in- market institutions that enable the wealthy to you know, provide some benefits toward the poor.
0: So one thing that, That also struck me reading your paper was the way in which the entire paradigm of community economic development, on some level, seems to sort of ignore the actual values that inhere in the communities and people themselves. I I wonder if you could talk about that, why you think that's a problem, and how we could reframe these questions in ways that would help us see existing values instead of, instead of ignoring them.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think there are so many, I think to me, community economic development is a fascinating, fascinating area of law because it's very interdisciplinary. It pulls on a lot of different um, legal domains as it were, you know, in the one sense, it's, it's a question about property. And historically, property law has been used as a vehicle to shelter the interests of a few um, at the detriment of many. What do I mean by that? Property has historically been used as a way for government to um, sort of of protect the power and privilege of those who have the means, resources, and sort of uh, cultural support sociocultural support to gain access to property um, when we know that historically many have not had the means the resources the sociocultural support and and frankly sometimes just the le- the the legality to gain access to property um and so there's a question about property right because we have many poor communities where where people don't own anything. They may have lived there for generations, right? But they may not own anything. And our property regime does not recognize or acknowledge uh, the sort of social capital that generates over time, This the the sort of social ties and bonds that people have with place. Um, our property you know, regime doesn't honor that. And to me, You know, and I have another piece where I talk about the how law, the law around community development often invokes sort of historic ideas connected to white supremacy, I think. You know, to me, um, Section 8, say there, right, Section 8 Housing Choice Voucher, I'm going to give a poor person a voucher so they can afford to move wherever they want. Uh, but but what I'm not going to do is give them a property right or at least recognize their existing relationship to space because they're not a property owner. And in fact, in many instances, I might tear down the housing development where they live and build mixed development housing that we celebrate may bulldoze. Existing communities. I mean, this is happening to this day all over the country, right? I'm gonna I may tear down these so-called ghettos under the guise of community development because they don't own property anyway. They have no ties to this place. To me, this is just the way that we've ritualized white supremacy because we've been moving black people since the beginning of America, right? Because we don't acknowledge or, or view as meaningful their ties to place. They're movable people. We've been moving brown people since the beginning of this country, right? We've been moving indigenous people since. They're movable people, disposable people. So property is but one regime to think about it. But, um, you know, I know we don't have all day to talk about this, but I do want to mention one point that I think is important to raise. Underlying all of this is an idea about liberty or freedom. What does it mean to be free? And really, that's a question about humanity. What does it mean to be human in relation to others? And it connects to your question because it then means What does it mean to be in in community with others? And how do I express my humanity in community with others? Right, One conception of expressing my humanity might be in a very competitive, individualistic way. What it means to be a human to me is competing, getting out in the marketplace, fighting for you know the fight to the finish um and that conception of humanity might require a government that honors private property that might honor competition that might you know regulate competition by trying to prevent monopoly power but that's sort of one paradigm about what it means to be human what it means to be in a relationship there might be other conceptions of humanity that are more communitarian that are more uh, uh, solidar- solidaristic that are that that are, you know, that mean that we exist in in community with one another. That maybe we share ownership, we share accountability, that we're not in competition, but that we're in concert. And that might then demand a different conception of government. How does government promote sharing? Promote community? Promote community? Uh, understandings of, of, of property, right? This idea of community property, the commons, right? That's a different conception of the role of government. But to me, it ultimately comes down to what does it mean to be free? What does liberty mean? And I think that's really the biggest issue that I try to tease out on this paper. And it's also something that, to be quite frank, I mean, people like Martin Luther King and others observe Um. In, in political theory, there's a distinction between what's called negative liberty and positive liberty. Negative liberty is a sense of um, experiencing freedom from interference. And in many ways, that's what the work of the civil rights movement was doing, at least in its earliest conception, which is how do we create a system where Black Americans, where minoritized Americans can experience freedom from the interference of white supremacy on their social mobility, right? How can they go into a restaurant and not experience interference from their movement, their freedom of movement, their liberty to move around simply because of the color of their skin, right? That's negative liberty. There's a second strand of liberty. Um, and you know, there are political theorists that kind of lay this out, Isaiah Berland and others. There's there's some great faculty at Harvard, Danielle Allen, um, that speak on this. There's another strand of liberty, and speak on this far better than I do, called um, positive liberty. And, and actually, this is a really interesting point because it, it, it has a lot to do with our republic which is to say, do citizens have to participate in the shaping of what democracy is, right? We have to remember that in the early conception of America, there was a belief among the bourgeois class that all people in our country did not have to participate in the democratic process. I mean, this is the very basis of the electoral college, right? That there are some... And this carries with it very racist and classist ideas. There are some that are better suited to shape political discourse on behalf of others. Um, and, And so there's been historically debate about this notion of positive liberty, which is, do I have the freedom to participate in the political discourse that shapes the demos that shapes the laws and institutions that construct the social order. And um, historically there's been debate upon which do people even need positive liberty? Do they need the freedom to participate in shaping that? I mean, some people just think some people are inferior. They don't need it because it's, uh, it's, it's maybe optional if they feel like they're up to the task. Um, but if we believe that everyone deserves, and in fact, everyone needs to participate in the conversation about shaping political life in right? positive liberty matters. And then we get into this conversation about freedom from domination. Right? This is a conversation that's been teased out right now in this law and political economy movement that was that has sort of been bubbling out of Yale University and Columbia and some other elite institutions. Um, and, and you know, that's an entirely separate conversation, but but at least one of the topics that they're bringing to the, the, the forefront in legal discourse is this I- idea about domination and what freedom from domination means. And this was in fact the work that Martin Luther King was starting to take up with the Poor People's Campaign, You know, work that got him shot um, because it's radical work. It's work that says liberty is not simply being free from the interference of, of, you know, races. Freedom also means being empowered to shape what democracy looks like. And Martin Luther King had some really radical ideas. I mean, Martin Luther King was saying a lot of the stuff that uh, AOC and Bernie Sanders and others are saying. I mean, he was talking about a universal basic income. He was talking about a right to employment. He was talking about building affordable housing stock until we, you know, we could limit homelessness and maybe even eradicate it. Um, it's just, so to me, I think that's a really important part of the conversation in a lot of uh, the discourse that's being raised now, you know, which is ultimately community economic development is at a juncture where we can rethink the, uh, the meaning of what it means to be equal and what it means to be free.
0: Well, Etienne, in closing, in in your paper, you talk about sort of rethinking community development through the lens of justice, as opposed to a kind of through a more kind of neoclassical economic lens. I wonder if you could talk about briefly about what that would mean and what kind of values that could promote that we're currently not addressing, recognizing, valuing, advancing in the ways that
1: we ought to be. It's such an important question. And to me, it's a question of the times, right? I mean, Eddie Gloud has a book that just came out called Begin Again, where he points us to think about the work of James Baldwin and, and, and what it means for our moment. And in that book, he says that, you know, we, um, we need a moral reckoning as a country. Um, and he describes that moral reckoning as Americans needing to walk through our ruins and to sort of coming face to face with the terror and fear and trauma of what we've been. Um, To me, I think what he's urging us to do is sort of let go of the fictions of American life that are sustained by our commitment to neoclassical assumptions, right? We have to remember that this is all theory, neoclassical assumptions, neoliberal principles and and consider other conceptions of socioeconomic life and 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 so to me justice begins by that moral reckoning sort of sort of enabling ourselves as a people to reconsider uh, the fundamental fairness of the principles that undergird how we think about policy and you know this is not reinventing the wheel i'm in the paper i point toward other countries, you know, and I think that's where we might find some promise. Um, you know, if we if we go across, uh, if we go, you know, a couple a a, a plane rides to Europe, uh, a short plane trip, we might find different ideas, different conceptions, and you know, Spain has a long history of embracing what would many call the social and solidarity economy. And it's a way of thinking about economic life through a different lens. It's a way of elevating different principles. And to me, it doesn't mean that we throw away capitalism per se, but I think it means that we rethink the sort of normative principles that shape how we construct policymaking in a capitalist economy. It means that we may prioritize cooperation. Over competition, right? And think about how law and policy might promote cooperation versus competition. I mean that might that might emphasize different kinds of business entities, right? I teach business organizations, and you know we we teach students about corporations and partnerships, but um, you know there's also this this notion of a cooperative entity that has a long history in America that has a long history in marginalized communities, and that builds upon principles of cooperation. And in in, in Montragón, Spain, there's a, there's a long history of one of the world's largest cooperative ecosystems where, in fact, I mean, it, it, it's an ecosystem of, of uh, it's a cooperation of businesses that, you know, when I learned about it, it's rare for a business to fail, you know, we're in, we're, in a, we're in a pandemic where so many small businesses are failing. It's rare in the Mondragon Co- Cooperative Association, it's rare for a business to fail because of that principle of cooperation, which means if one business is, is is falling short, they just simply redirect the funds from other businesses. There's this ethic of sharing. There's this ethic of shared accountability. Um you know i mentioned in the paper other principles sort of solidarity which pushes us away from this individualistic sort of exceptionalist ethic that that we have in america that that pushes us to to embrace color blindness and neutrality and to try to pretend that that sort of slavery and jim crow and and internment and genocide and and um and all these other things never happened, you know. I think this ethic of solidarity pushes us to to say to say to say to ourselves: How do we come to terms with this history? How do we work together? It's not a it's not a question of well, if we give some benefits to these folks, that means we're harming others. How do we rethink what it means to be citizens and rethink the notion of of working together? Um, we have. We have this idea right now, of the essential worker, you know, but really it's it's the sacrificial worker um, because while some are on the front lines with no extra benefits and no extra healthcare, so to speak, others are at home. And how do we reckon with that? How do we, what does solidarity mean in, in that kind of world? And so I think some of these principles really just push us to like, Think about law and policy in a new way. I mean, through this lens, to me, universal health care makes so much sense if we think about the sacrifices that some bear um, on behalf of others. So I'll, so I'll stop there. I mean, but
0: well, great. Etienne, thanks so much for coming on the show and talking about this excellent paper and also reflecting more broadly on some of the ideas that I know are animating this and your other work. I, I encourage listeners to check out this paper as as well as the rest of your essays. And uh, I hope we can have you on the show again soon sometime.
1: Fantastic. It's a pleasure. And once again, I thank you for doing this excellent work. It's I know it's un. You know, uncompensated work, unrewarded work, even in academia, so to speak, but it's it's important work. It's it's democratic work and it's it's um it's activist work and and it's and it's the work. So I appreciate what you're doing.
0: Thank you.
2: yes, look here, Mr. Landlord, let's you and I get together. Cause I'm just like a bird right out here in all this weather. Yes, I don't have any money. Yes, to buy myself some clothes. Yes, yeah, Mr. Landlord, you know you're taking all my gold. Well I went to my grocery man to get some chops. He said, look here, buddy, it's cash you got to drop. Yes. hey, Mr. Landlord, you got me in a bag. <laughs> One of these days I'll get some gold by myself again.